0: Honestly, if you really want to pay attention to canon, there should be a reason why Tupring chooses Kirk to die.
1: That! Oh my god. See? This is the love triangle! Because now you set up for why Tupring is like, my man's boyfriend? Gotta fight him and die.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Mark Farines, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan
1: Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk.
0: And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture.
1: Today, it's a charade of a good time when Spock's future in-laws pop in for a visit. Then Indiana Jones discovers the undiscovered country, sends Nazi villains spewing lines from Shakespeare in his farewell film. But first, we want to address some of the current happenings in Star Trek and the entire Hollywood industry. This week, we lost writer-producer Manny Cotto to pancreatic cancer at age 62. Now, I know, Mark, you didn't watch much of Enterprise. There's still huge bits of it that I haven't seen. But Manny Cotto's fourth season stewardship of the show is what brought me back. Of all the seasons, it's the one that works the best. And you can see Manny's love for the original series throughout. He worked very hard to make Enterprise make sense in regards to the original series. But I'm also a fan of his other one season Showtime sci-fi series, Odyssey 5, starring Peter Weller, about five astronauts who witness the destruction of Earth and are sent back in time five years by a benevolent alien to prevent Earth's end. Our condolences to Manny Koto's family and You know what? Fuck cancer.
0: Yeah. Also this week, Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Lower Decks received nominations for the Hollywood Critics Award. Congratulations to listener and Picard executive producer Terry Metalis and the rest of the cast and crew for their nominations. And kudos to the entire cast and crew of Lower Decks. Us jerks are really looking forward to the upcoming crossover with Strange New Worlds.
1: Meanwhile, the alliance of motion picture and television producers pissed off Nanny Fine and the SAG-AFTRA leadership.
0: How they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving
1: hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. As we record this, two of Hollywood's biggest unions, the Writers Guild of America, and the Screen Actors Guild are on the picket lines. They're fighting for a livable wage for all working writers and actors.
0: Yeah, there's a sense among some that actors make enough as it is, and maybe that's the case with A-listers, but most actors are just scraping by like anyone else. And in some cases, like Hollywood's plans to scan and use the likenesses of extras in productions forever without paying them, they're getting put out of work. This kind of union organizing is incredibly impressive because it really is the people at the top fighting for everyone all the way down. As part of the strike, actors can't work on shows or films, can't do press junkets or promote current or upcoming projects, and can't go to conventions like next week's San Diego Comic Con. Now, we want to take a moment to address all those fans who will be going to next week's convention, which is the end-all and be-all of cons.
1: Yes, it's disappointing that the big guns like Marvel have already diminished their attendance. Yes, it's even more disappointing that our fan-favorite actors and writers might not be there. But this is not the fault of the actors and writers who only want their fair share for the labor that Hollywood profits from. This is the fault of the greedy CEOs, studios, and streamers who want to exploit that labor while lining their own pockets. But this isn't just a fight over money. It's a fight for survival in an increasingly and rapidly changing industry. Without writers and actors, there are no movies, no shows, nothing to fill the panels and exhibit hall of Comic-Con. If the industry dies, then so does Comic-Con and other events like it. We've been through this already, fans, with the pandemic. We held off coming together and celebrating our fandom for the greater good. This is another greater good that will determine whether there'll still be stuff to celebrate. There will be other cons, other chances to meet our faves. But this is a watershed moment in the history of Hollywood. We jerks stand with the actors and writers, and we urge you to do the
0: same. Amen. Amen. We are halfway through Strange New World's second season with Charades. Just like last season, the show has decided to focus on Spock at its midpoint. Spock and Chapel encounter an anomaly that damages their shuttle and changes Spock into a full-blooded human. Spock must hide his rounded ears from his soon-to-be in-laws who are looking for any reason to dissolve his relationship with T'Pring. Ryan, my friend, did you know I'm a vegetarian because I'm part Vulcan? <laughs> it's true. That's apparently the only way one wouldn't eat meat. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Mark, it seems like every fifth episode of uh, every season of Strange New Worlds will be a Spock and to Pring get into some hijinks, jinkies, or what I like to call Spock jinks. And, you know, I'm okay with that. This episode, like Spock a Monk, might be the closest Star Trek comes to being an outright sitcom. All we need is the laugh track.
0: I definitely got a sense that the whole betrothal ceremony was really a festivus without the pole there was certainly a lot of airing of grievances i got a lot of problems with you people now you're gonna hear about it and you know what
1: i don't really mind that one of the things that i love about the original series was its ability just to do a straight-up hilarious episode I laughed out loud in many places during this episode, especially during the farcical dinner, which I immensely enjoyed being a fan of farces like uh, La Cage of Follies or its Americanized version, The Birdcage. Even if it makes the Vulcans a little less alien and that much more human.
0: I thought this episode was funny, too. I gave this episode the benefit of the doubt early on. A lot of people were saying that this was going to be another biological deterministic polemic, but I said, you know, wait and see, maybe they're going to turn all that on its head by making human Spock use being human as an excuse to do what he always wanted to do, and then maybe finds that he doesn't actually like it, even as a human. They didn't do that. Instead, we got exactly what the trailer implied. Spock's behavior radically changes despite his upbringing and deeply held beliefs because his ears change their shape.
1: We've talked a lot on this podcast about biracialness or lack thereof with Spock. And you're right. This episode, once again, leans really heavily on racial determination and that a person's characteristics are made up solely of their racial biology, that it's that which dictates who we are rather than the social cultural climate we actually grow up in. Trek says, if you're this, you must be that. A lot, even though the show goes out of its way to show that we are more than the sum of our parts, that our experiences contribute to who we are. But here we double down on Vulcans are this, humans are that. Even though it's Amanda who shows the most emotional restraint in the face of T'Pring's snotty and bigoted mother. You know, it, it's like it's like that Voyager episode Faces. And here I would have rather have seen a subversion of the racial expectations. What if it was Spock's Vulcan side that is the more volatile emotional? After all, Vulcan emotions are more intense than humans, hence the suppression and devotion to logic, and that it's really his human side that allows him to be more Vulcan. Kind of like the enemy Within, where it's Kirk's darker side that makes him brave and decisive and commanding, but it needs to be tempered by Kirk's compassionate, sensitive side. Or, or with the Klingon Balana and human Balana. If that episode had showed her blaming the wrong side, that it was her human side that was temperamental, not her Klingon. But the difference with Faces than this episode, I think, is that it does lean more into that a biracial person needs both sides to be whole. But I don't know about you, Mark. I've never felt split to begin with.
0: Yeah, I watched Faces in preparation for this, and I came away from it really annoyed especially at uh, human Bolana Taurus suddenly forgetting all of her training and just becoming this meek little mouse that can't do anything. And yeah, I think it would have been really interesting if she found out, hey, you know what? Your human side is a jerk also.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: And you can't keep blaming that other side because she actually, at the end of it, is disappointed that they're going to have to put her back together. She doesn't request it. It's a biological imperative that she needs to become whole again.
1: Yeah, because she has that moment where she touches her forehead at the end, right? Yeah. Lamenting that she's going to have ridges again.
0: Yeah. And of course, in usual Voyager compassionate fashion, Tom Paris tries to compare Bolanos' childhood trauma with getting a bad haircut from his father. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with charades, there had to have been a war in the writer's room over this with someone high up saying, I really want a silly Spock that drops F-bombs and sexually harasses La'an. And people below them saying, no, that makes no sense because the messages in this are so mixed up. First of all, we have Spock flat out saying Vulcans have emotions. They just repress them. So becoming human shouldn't have changed that nor should it make him suddenly acquire a love for bacon or understand jokes that he didn't get before. And like you were saying before, Amanda is this genetic determinist counterpoint because she's fully human, and yet she behaves in a very Vulcan way because she appreciates the culture and wants to assimilate into it. So there's nothing in human Spock stopping him from being the very same guy he's always been. Nothing biological makes him act the way he does, only his experiences.
1: It reminds me of the argument with Superman and Clark Kent. It's always the nature versus nurture argument. Depending on what era of writer was handling Superman, you'd have the more, it's the nature. He's Superman because he's Kryptonian, comes from Krypton. He identifies only as Superman, Clark Kent is nothing more than a mask, even though he spent the majority of his life being raised with that identity. And then there's the nurture, which says that Superman is who he is, not because of his powers, but because of Clark Kent and how the Kents raised him. Take the Kents out of the equation and Superman becomes a dictator. So if it was a nurture thing, you'd think that even and without the Kents, Superman would still grow up to be Superman but that's not how it works or that's not how the canon has shown us. So I think that's the same thing here in Star Trek. It's always that it is your nature because you are born this rather than it is that you become who you are because of the nurturing and the experiences, right? Star Trek's filled with these contradictory messages. Kirk needs his pain, but Spock can only be Vulcan.
0: I didn't really think about this at all until I saw a post on it, but, Spock eating bacon in particular is kind of a low blow because Leonard Nimoy went out of his way to code Spock as Jewish, whether it was with the Vulcan salute, which is a rabbinical blessing, or portraying the character as an outcast looking for a place to belong. And almost every major Vulcan in the original series, Sarek, T'Pring, T'pau, was played by a Jewish actor. But Spock isn't played by a Jewish actor anymore. It's like it was okay when he was just some alien sidekick, but now that the character is world-renowned and beloved, he has to be played by a Gentile. It's just too important a role to give to a Jewish actor. And yet, even with the goification of Spock, we have mixed messages because every Amanda since Jane Wyatt has been Jewish, especially Mia Krishner, who was Totally admitting balabusta energy in this episode. You know, this is a woman who's never put together a disappointing Shabbat.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the Sarek household, Hanukkah was observed every year. Yeah, Ooh.
0: absolutely. So there's a sense that this is part of Spock's background. Just not in the character himself, because Ethan Peck, bless his heart, is such a wasp. And even his take on the character as this reserved robot is very waspy. He eschews all of Nimoy's sassiness and lip.
1: Peck Spock is far more emotionally intelligent than Nimoy's Spock. He cares more about the feelings of others than his own, like with Chapel and even to Pring. He also withholds telling Mr. Kirk off about his mess whereas human Spock was the one to finally say something. But Nemoy Spock would simply have been blunt and not care at all about how the other person felt. He would have said, Mr. Kirk, is your clan this slovenly? Please clear the remnants of your food from the conference table immediately. And and this Spock's more emotional consideration harms his relationship with T'Pring. And girl, I'm with you. Spock's logic isn't sound. He's acting like the Vulcan equivalent of a macho dude sparing his girlfriend's feelings. I can see how she eventually hooks up with Stan instead.
0: I saw people saying that T'Pring was wrong for being upset, that Spock didn't fill her in on what was happening. And those people are clearly not in relationships because you tell your other half everything. Brian, everything that we talk about, my wife knows about it five minutes later. It's just how things work, and um, it's not a healthy relationship if that's not the case.
1: Yes, I agree. I find myself siding with T'Pring more than I I do with Spock, because just Spock's not open. She's trying to spend time with you, dude. She's trying to get to know you. She's actually going out of her way to read human erotica to learn how to sexually please you, dude. (laughs) You could have let her in on the secret of this episode, that your ears were gone. (laughs) And she would have understood.
0: For sure. I think so, too. Yeah, a lot of people were done a disservice in this episode. I think Pike is one of them. I liked his role in the betrothal ceremony. I, I think he was really funny and charming. Him sort of dealing with it and the faces that he made, even at his own reactions, were spot on. But he's also completely out of the loop when Chapo Uhura and Ortegas take the shuttle out. It's a very kid stealing the car sequence. And I don't know why they didn't go to him to authorize it. The writers are making him look like an idiot that doesn't know what's going on in his own ship.
1: Yeah, or at least have them, you know, convince number one that they should do it.
0: Yeah, give her something to do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Other than laughing in the bar, you know, I actually agree. Anson Mount is really good at the double take and a side eye. I felt like you could take Pike from this episode and just drop him into an episode of Abbott Elementary, yeah. and he'd fit right in. Him and Gregory would be competing for side-eye double takes. Uh, <laughs> the sidelining of Pike is something that, as you know, is one of my critiques of Strange New Worlds, because I'm still of the mindset that the captain of any Star Trek show is the one who has to drive most of the action. And I get that that this is an ensemble and, you know, I think that Pike in Strange New Worlds is actually how Martin Sheen's president, Bartlett, was supposed to be in the West Wing. He gets involved. He's not really the focus of the episode. He's sort of there, but he's not. And that's sort of how Pike is a little bit in Strange New Worlds. I understand the logistical reasons for why in this season he's a little more sidelined. He had parental leave. But I still would like to see more, more Pike just kind of driving things forward.
0: You know, I wonder if the writers have a service like the old Star Trek did, like, what was it, DeForest Research? Yeah. Who would look at the scripts and say, this is not how things are done in the military. This is not a real star. So that somebody can warn them, hey, look, you've got three people taking a shuttle off the ship. Command has to know about this. Somebody has to authorize this. And there's no reason why they wouldn't.
1: Yeah, I know they have scientific advisors, but yeah, military, it just, it is. Well, this goes back to what I've been saying is, is that the original series is very clearly a Space Navy drama. Then you get to the next generation and it's the office in space, right? The military stuff is there, but it's kind of like a trapping, you know, it's just like, oh, we just took the company car for a joyride.
0: But I can't imagine in Next Generation or even Voyager... Somebody just grabbing a shuttle and leaving.
1: No, that's true. That is true.
0: This is, I think, something that is original to Strange New Worlds.
1: Speaking of the shuttle, I really dug that it was three female characters going in and really saving the day. Ortegas, Uhura, and Chapel, they need to go on more away missions together. They make a great team that could get into all sorts of trouble, much as I'll address the the romance aspects of the episode in a bit, but I do like that bit where like the aliens are trying to be, what's your relation to Spock? And Uhura and Ortega are, girl, everyone knows. Just tell them. <laughs> you ain't hiding anything, girl.
0: <laughs> she could have just said that she was his physician.
1: Yes, of course. Of course.
0: That would have been close enough to get whatever alien <laughs> HIPAA information she needed to get. Yeah, And I don't know what to say about and Spock's romance. We were saying last week that Pike's relationship with a Batel wasn't great, but it wasn't cringe. Spock and Chapel are cringe, and even if you're not a Spurk fan, you can't possibly want this really juvenile high school romance. I don't think the Asters have chemistry. I don't know what Chapel sees in Spock. She's not the sad sack she was in the original series. She's just too cool for him. If Chapel wasn't so fleshed out as an individual, this will be dipping into Manic Pixie territory. I can see a woman like her being intrigued with Nimoy Spock, but not Pex. Not, not at all.
1: I do agree about the Chapel and Spock relationship. I mean, I'd like to see more of her going on adventures and less of the K-I-S-S-I-N-G with Spock. Because you're right. Strangely World sets up this chapel as a fierce force, a stellar scientist to be reckoned with. I want her to kick ass like she did in the season opener. I wanted more of that before we got into her Love Lorn with Spock. I will say Jess Bush comes alive as this version of Christine Chapel. She's getting material that really digs deep into the character and allows her to take Chapel to places Major Barrett unfortunately wasn't. On the Ready Room, Bush says that the original series kept Chapel as a means to highlight Spock's detachment. And yeah. Chapel was little more than window dressing in the original series. But despite the Spock-Chapel romance, here we get a range of emotions from this chapel, and I'm here for that. If you told me as a teen there'd be a Star Trek show where I fall in love with Chapel, I wouldn't believe you, but I love this chapel. But I also want to see more of the strong, independent, bisexual Chapel, and not someone who's saddled with what I've always felt was one of the blandest elements in the original series. Chapels love over Spock, because it was obviously one-sided. And I was looking forward to seeing a chapel who was sciencing and doing her own thing for a while before that ever came up.
0: Yeah, you'll get no argument from me. I've loved Jess Bush since the pilot. She was actually one of my favorite parts of the pilot, because she was the person who was enjoying herself the most. If I seem down on the Spock-Chapel relationship, it's that I think that she she as a character is being dragged into something that is beneath her.
1: Right. What I like the most about this show is is that it has pushed against canon and expectations. But I think this is one of those pieces of canon that I wish they had just either pushed further against or just jettisoned, because it's one of my least favorite aspects of the original series. And of course, you know, I'm a huge Spurk advocate. I'd rather this whole love triangle played out between Spock, Jim Kirk, and Tepurring instead. I would like to end on something I really liked about this episode. I really liked this episode. Like I said, it made me laugh. But the one thing that I really loved about this episode was we got a strange new life form.
0: <laughs> we really did.
1: I mean, sure, it's another energy light being. But then again, that's very original series, right? Yep. Maybe because I'm trying to find humor in this situation, uh, since I'm going through it. But these non-corporeal life forms operate like medical insurance or hospital admins. What's your relationship to the patient? Even when you're a being of light particles, there's still goddamn paperwork to fill out. And they kept hanging up. I have been there. I have been there where you're on the phone and you're being transferred to the the medical insurance person that you're supposed to speak to and the line just cuts off. And then you call back and they're like, well, you called us.
0: (laughs) I loved, I did love the, (laughs) you called me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it was giving me some serious United States healthcare system vibes. Because, you know, going through a medical condition that I was diagnosed last year, for which I am still waiting to see a specialist an entire year and a half later from my diagnosis. This may be the episode's social commentary and is surely an indictment of our healthcare system in the United States. And I am here for it. It is my favorite part of the episode because it felt both too real and alien enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there really is nothing more alien than a customer service person especially one that doesn't care what your feelings are concerning your own health and possibly your life. It is like talking to an alien.
1: For the first time in this podcast history, Mark and I left the house. Yeah, we went outside so we could tell you about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Warning to those who haven't seen it yet, Major spoilers abound, starting now. Just as he's about to retire, Henry Walton Jones Jr., I mean the dog Indiana, (laughs) is dragged into another adventure, this time to stop a former Nazi scientist from reconstituting the Third Reich with the help of an ancient Greek time travel device. Now, Mark, this wasn't as bad as I was bracing myself for. I was expecting Kingdom of the Crystal Skull levels of horrible. But this felt like a slight return to form for the franchise. Was it great? No. Was it entertaining and enjoyable? Yes, absolutely. But then again, anything after Crystal Skull would be good, I suppose. Also, this film had Phoebe Waller-Bridge and not the scum plagiarist Shia LaBeouf. Yes, he is a plagiarist. He took a Dan Klaus comic, shot a film that's nearly word for word of it and passed it off as his own work. And then when caught, he had the unmitigated gall to play it off as being inspired by Klaus's work. But Waller (laughs) Bridge is a breath of fresh air in the franchise.
0: Shia LaBeouf as a greaser in that last film was, I think, one of the lowest points in any franchise's history. It's like what Gene Roddenberry used to say about David Marcus. Indy Jr. is one of the best arguments for abortion that there is. (laughs) And now he's gone.
1: Yes. And the, the the lost son that turns up never really works out.
0: I'm not sure I could call myself an Indiana Jones fan. I really only like Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you ignore the racism, it's a perfect film. And Dial... It's a lot like The Last Crusade in that it's decent enough action-adventure that relies a lot on trying to figure out what worked so well in Raiders. We've got Indy fighting Nazis and Arabs again. There's a lot of chase scenes, and Indy scores victory after victory just to see them eventually snapped away. You know, they always get the thing they're after, and then suddenly the bad guy shows up to take the thing from them. They did that like three or four times in this. Yes. (laughs) In fact, a lot like Raiders, Indy's role is borderline meaningless to the outcome. The Nazi never had a chance of succeeding. Jones is just there to bring the relic home when the bad guy fails. I've always
1: seen Indy both in Raiders and in this. He's not so much the catalyst of the story. He's the observer. He's, He's the audience, right? He's the audience going through the adventure in that old-school serial or old-school TV way, right, where Indy doesn't change at all, usually in these movies. He's pretty much the same guy from the beginning to the end. The journey doesn't alter his perception of his world. Although I will say this, however, does. I know there's been a lot of criticism about how Disney takes these iconic heroes like Luke, in Indy, turning them from hopeful adventurer into depressed cynics, but, you know, I'll always assert that Last Jedi gave Mark Hamill the best Luke Skywalker material for him to play.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: But I don't see Indy in this film as Luke or even the morose Jean-Luc Picard from Picard's first season. He's not so much world-weary, but weighed down by life. The loss of his son, his inability to comfort his wife, a man filled with regrets that he's drowned in academia and whiskey. Depressed, yes, but hardly a cynic because when push comes to shove, Indy is still Indy in this movie. He believes it belongs in a museum. He, said, he even says that several times. Although I do wish that the younger version of Indy in the opening sequence acknowledged that some of the antiquities that the Nazis stole belonged to the countries they were pillaged from and not placed in yet another British American Museum, but this indie is still motivated by science more than he is by profit. I mean, indie is still indie, and as someone who lives with chronic, sometimes debilitating depression, I feel less alone when I see heroes I grew up with wrestling with similar issues. I empathize with this indie, much as I could with Last Jedi Luke or Picard Picard or even the depressed Admiral Kirk at the start of the motion picture. But despite that depression, all these characters remained who they are at their core. And I'd like to think that despite my depression and mental health challenges, I'm still the same good person at my core. And for that, I admire the arc of India in this film.
0: I also really like that they're clearly, again, trying to give him a mentee and it's somebody that he has to learn to love and has to earn his love as opposed to a secret child that he has to love.
1: Yes. Helena reminded me so much of Marion in Raiders. You spoke about them trying to figure out what made Raiders were. I, I definitely didn't like Kate Capshaw's character in in, in Temple of Doom because it wasn't an equal to Indy. It was, she was just there and she screamed a lot, right? She was just the damsel, Mm -hmm. right? But here now we have another uh, strong female character like Marianne that could stand toe-to-toe with Indy.
0: Well, you know, I was the one who suggested to see this movie because I'm a huge fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, especially her her two TV series Fleabag and Crashing. And she was really, really good in this. Uh, She actually had me laughing with her first line um, because... She's one of those comedians that can communicate a lot with just the flick of her eyes.
1: Her in this film reinvigorated my enjoyment of the franchise, because that last movie really just, I was like, I'm done with these. I I can't watch another indie movie.
0: While we were watching Picard, I was also watching the Apple TV show Shrinkage, which co-stars Harrison Ford. Patrick Stewart and Ford are the same age, but... I could never help but notice Ford still has a really powerful presence that Stewart just doesn't anymore. One of the things that makes Dial work as well as it does is that I believe Harrison Ford could still do all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I do agree. Ford has much more presence here than Stewart did in the first two seasons of Picard. Uh, And certainly for the majority of the third season, I thought Stewart finally came alive in that show for me. The moment he stepped onto the Enterprise D bridge, I felt like, oh, now he's got presence. Now he's got that old sort of Jean-Luc Picard back. But yeah, Ford, he's still the one thing you look at on the screen when he's on.
0: Yeah, he's old, but he's not frail. Yeah. It's really funny watching a Nazi punching movie in 2023 because it used to be a given that you punched Nazis. And now it almost seems like a daring political statement. In fact, Showing that there are Nazis being abetted by our government now looks like an analogy to something modern, not just an allusion to the 60s space program. We even have the CIA hauling away Indy with a bag over his head in the exact same way the Nazis did in the film's opening flashback. Yeah, They're trying to make a point here.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: There's even a swipe at male grievance. You know, we've got this ex-Nazi as the bad guy who is, in fact, still a Nazi, and he has the CIA at his beck and call, and he's getting a Medal of Honor from the president, and he has the nerve to say to Indy, the world no longer cares about men like us. Like, wow, <laughs> you have everything, and you still feel like the victim. Yeah,
1: that that is a great moment and statement. Because it's like we have to keep reminding people, you know, the Nazis aren't really great people. <laughs> Speaking of statements, are things that I found jarring, right? Mason, the government agent, actress Shawnette Renee Wilson likened her character to the Black agents that were recruited by the FBI and CIA to infiltrate the Black Panther Party, which happened, and I, I totally get, But it was really jarring for me to see a black woman working alongside these white pride neo-Nazis and an actual Nazi and that she was killed off by the Nazi. It just kind of left me with a really bad taste in my mouth.
0: Has there been any other black women at all in this franchise? No. I may be wrong because I haven't watched a lot of them in a long time, but I can't remember any black people at all in this franchise. So we may very well have gotten our first one. And yeah, she's working for the CIA and she gets killed off a third of the way through the movie. Just as I was thinking, maybe she's going to be an ally of the indie team. Yeah. And it didn't happen. They just shot her. And that was it. That was the end. Yeah. I, was, I was aghast. I thought it was really tasteless. Yeah, exactly.
1: I can forgive the, once again, the good black cop trope that the movie relies on. The one that we've talked about with things like Secret Invasion and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I can forgive that. But to see the moment she's working with these obviously blue, blonde-eyed Nazi dudes, and, you know, I wouldn't mind so much, or it might have been a little more easier to swallow had there been other Black characters either in the franchise or in this movie.
0: Yeah, she certainly is the only Black person in this film. Quick note, after we recorded this, I did a little research and found that there was one other major Black character in the indie franchise. Simon Katango was the captain of the smuggling freighter and raiders. Now let's get back to the show. Also in the tasteless category is Indy fighting Arabs again. And what makes it worse is that there's car chase after car chase, and every one of them sends them crashing through another fruit stand. In all these movies, if someone goes outside the United States, it's all fruit stands. The whole world is one giant fruit stand to Hollywood producers. It's crazy.
1: Where's the street food? Where's where's the open marketplace? Where's the other stuff? (laughs) It's just fruit stands.
0: Or just an empty street. There are some streets that are not covered in people hawking stuff.
1: Uh, Well, speaking of that car chase, one, thank the God Particle for practical effects, because the car chase is the best action sequence in the film because there's not a lot of CGI whipping us as the audience around or elevating the chase or whatever. You know, it's grounded. The stakes feel that much more immediate. But that fucking car chase went on forever. It just dragged after a while. You're like, oh, it's going to be over. Nope, it's not over. It's going to be over. Oh, fruit stand. It's going to be over. Fucking another fruit (laughs) stand. You know, it's like I really felt like a good 30 minutes of material could have been trimmed out of this movie it's just like, there's this adage in screenwriting, start late, get out early. God damn, every sequence, every scene is just, it started way too soon and it stayed far longer than it should.
0: It was a movie that was too long by about a half an hour. It is a half an hour longer than Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I am glad that that middle chase was mostly practical because where this movie really fails is... Anytime there's a CGI set piece, the whole opening sequence is all CG, including Indy's deep faked face. And it's in the dark so you can't see just how bad the CG is. It particularly falls flat considering this is a chase scene desperately trying to evoke Raiders. And all I could think is, man, this looked way better when it was done in broad daylight with actual people and vehicles 40 years ago.
1: It's also trying to evoke the beginning of Last Crusade, where uh, he's being chased on the circus train and he falls into the thing with the snake. Um,
0: Yeah, and that's a great sequence. I remember that sequence. I think that that's the highlight of that film. Because it's
1: practical. It's all in camera, right? Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I felt that's a scene that you just, you only needed a section of that. You could have just started that with Indy on the train dressed as a Nazi, and we're like, wait, why is he dressed as a Nazi? And then, you know, oh, he's after this thing. But really, there's this other thing. And you could have started there. I didn't need the whole thing with the house and then him being hanged. And it just drug everything out. It's like there's no sense of starting at your highest point of conflict or your highest point of action. It's such a slow fucking burn with these temple movies now.
0: Yeah. Uh, an opening sequence like that shouldn't be any longer than ten minutes. No,
1: and that was like it should
0: leave you wanting more of it, not wishing that it would end.
1: Like the old James Bond movies, right? You'd have that like quick, like yeah. five to ten minute cold open, and then you'd get the barrel going over and you, you start your movie. But now, like it felt like that opening was at least fifteen to twenty minutes long.
0: Yeah, it could have been. Another problem is that like. Because of the bad CG, half of this movie pretty much takes place in the dark. Yeah. Whether it's the opening or it's the underwater sequence with the crappy looking eels or in the cave when they're finding the other half of the of the dial or and then when they're in daylight, I felt like the movie was oversaturated, probably to make it so that you couldn't tell what was real and what was fake. But it made almost everything look fake.
1: Yeah. Yeah, even when they were on actual boats.
0: Yeah. When they were in New York at the beginning, I don't know how much of that was real. I don't know how much of Tangiers was real because it was all pumped up to the point that it could have been CG. Yeah. And not in a good way. The blending of reality and CG was hard to tell, but not in a good way.
1: Which is why I freaking love the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies because all of that, is not enhanced by cgi it's all practical you feel like you're actually in the location that they're filming in or that the story takes place in whether it's Prague or dubai or or what have you right Mm -hmm. it just feels like it has reality it has weight i can touch it yeah I, i felt like even in the new york sequences i go i get it they're trying to make it look like 1969 and you know that doesn't exist anymore probably this is a conglomeration of a back lot or a small section of old New York or whatever, but it just man, it's just it's so blown the fuck out.
0: Yeah. Well I think the one thing that this film did right is it is it stuck the landing. And a lot of these so called final chapters of franchises, there's a temptation to give the hero a dramatic death. And it's always the Hammer style of going out, you know? I'm dying. Well, there's medical help right over here. No, it's too late for me, but but we can save you. No, no, my time has passed. And I'm so grateful that they subverted that trope. Uh-huh. Indy may have had a momentary death wish, but Waller Bridge just wouldn't have it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love when Helena just punches him. She's like, you know what, fuck this.
0: and that's it and that's the end you know that's one of the that's one of the points where it's like they're brief and it's great because she hits him it blacks out and he's back in his apartment there's no like dragging him up the stairs (laughs) showing us how he got there (laughs) yeah and i just and i kind of just
1: love like yeah we just fixed the murder charges that he had from the beginning of the movie it's not important anymore
0: (laughs) it doesn't matter it doesn't matter here's
1: karen allen
0: (laughs) (laughs) and oh my god oh my god i mean when marion shows up again that was nostalgia done right and they have this romantic scene that is a lot like the one in Raiders, where Marion is kissing all the spots on Indy that don't hurt. And I actually cry laughed a little bit. And the guy a few seats down from me, cry laughed in response. I forgot how much I love seeing movies in the theater with other humans.
1: I felt where I was like, oh, I miss being in a theater with human beings. Watching a movie was Triangle of Sadness because no. because of the whole vomiting scene. <laughs> just, oh man we were just wailing I like I think everyone was holding their their, their stomachs they were laughing so hard um I got I got really weepy eyed when Marion showed up I was like oh she came back she came back and then they do the kissing thing and I'm like oh it's like the movie the movie the one movie the one from b84 <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's the kind of clever callback that I appreciate.
1: Yeah, I like that it's like you know what it is, but they don't just hang a lantern over it and make a big production about it, right?
0: Yeah, it's their love language. It's natural. Yeah,
1: it's natural. Although I thought the hat should have stayed on the hanger as the final farewell shot. But then again, maybe Marion likes it when he wears the hat to bed. Wink, wink. <laughs>
0: uh that was my take from that also but i'm sure they're trying to make us wonder if there's going to be another one of these
1: yeah <laughs> i hope not <laughs>
0: to which i say just give waller bridges the hat and and let her
1: yeah exactly or bring short round helena and short round in a movie together oh
0: yeah i actually would prefer short round and free waller bridges up to do more of what she does best as a, an independent film and television maker yeah. yeah but that's a discussion for another day
1: One thing I do do want to say before we uh, put Archimedes back in his tomb is the blink and you'll miss him Antonio Banderas as Indy's diver friend. Like, it is him. Just don't blink. Because it took me like a minute to fully recognize who that was. And then he was dead.
0: This was one of those moments where maybe Indy shouldn't have been involved at all because all those people wouldn't have died
1: (laughs) as a result. Yes, yes
0: uh that's the one place where indy makes a difference he gets people killed
1: <laughs> but you know overall this was an enjoyable uh outing for indy it's not my favorite um uh, you know, raiders is the best i think after that for me it's last crusade and i have a s- soft spot for temple of doom only because of short round because there were no asian kids like me on screen until i saw him yeah That's it
0: for this week. I'm Ryan Riddle, a jerk, and I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song was by Fluffy. You can find all her work at sockpuppet.us, and you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter.
1: And I'm Ryan T Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with or just want to tell us your relationship to the patient? Well, we'll hang up on you. You can find the podcast on Twitter too at Shipful of Jerks.
0: whenever i hear and son i think of all those 80s cartoons pink panther and son captain caveman and son kirk and son indian son (laughs) no no